Hi everyone and welcome to Frazzis Kappa Podcast. I'm Michael Frazzis and today I'm having a chat with Sam Rich on episode 35. I hope you enjoy. Hi Sam, how's it going? Very well, thank you Mike. And yourself? Uh, very good. So, so some people might not know yet, but... Um, you're actually working with us now at Frazzis Capital Partners. Yes, I've been here with a few months for a few months now. Absolutely loving it. <laughs> Glad to hear. Um, you've done some interesting work on a couple of things. So I thought maybe we could talk about CrowdStrike, which is a US security company. So your background's obviously in computer science. Do you think you take us through what CrowdStrike actually does? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so CrowdStrike was actually one of my favorites. Um, and I think cybersecurity as a whole is a super interesting industry. Um, and with COVID, it's only accelerating. Um, I think most governments and businesses around the world would now be thinking, how do we protect our data now that everything is online? Um, and CrowdStrike is at the forefront um, of this industry. And I think the reason why we liked it so much um, is that it has a couple, it has a few intrinsic strengths that really attracted it, um, really attracted it to us. Um, the first is that it's um, a cloud-based company. So t- traditionally, you had the security companies which focused on protecting your on-premise. Um, on Some of those companies, it's like VMware. Yeah. And, um, and Norton. Yeah. Um, and a few others. And a few others. Um, so basically what CrowdStrike did is instead of kind of protecting those black boxes you had in the data centers, the whole the cloud, in, uh, cloud infrastructure completely changed that um, because now any computer around the world can access pretty much any, da- any of your company data. So really where the focus shifted in the cybersecurity space was towards endpoint protection. Um, And what that means is that an endpoint is a phone, a computer, or any device um, that can access um, the internet and thus your company data. Um, And what CrowdStrike does, um, it specializes in protecting endpoints um, from malware and threats. So that was our first, um, so that was the first reason why we like CrowdStrike. And the second reason was, um, is that customers loved it. Um, and also when a, for example, a big hack happened, for example, the Sony hack, CrowdStrike was the company called in to want to address and diagnose the issue and also provide security on an ongoing basis um, for the company. So those are a few reasons why we were really excited about CrowdStrike. It was interesting. They've got a different sales strategy as well, right? I mean, there was uh, one of the competitors, I can't remember who it was, got bought mm. by private equity and then like they slashed their budgets right down. And we're reading like, like interviewing, reading interviews with... Um, a customer was saying, you know, they went from having like a weekly dinner to having coffee. And then right at that moment, CrowdStrike, which is like very sales orientated, came in. Um, so it's one of those cases where they cut, cut the sales and marketing budget in their competitors, which also helped like create an opening for CrowdStrike. Yeah, absolutely. I think that raised a really interesting point that we've already seen the growth um, in revenue as a result of that customer support. Um, and I think CrowdStrike is doing things a little bit differently. Um, I think that's why they're also trading at quite a high valuation at the moment is the market that rec- is recognizing that this is a great company. Um, for example, when we were doing the work a couple months ago on CrowdStrike, we could already see that revenue had been consistently growing 80% year on year. Um, mm. And the business is now generating very, very strong cash. Yeah, exactly. And it was one of those ones where it was like trading pretty richly. So we uh, took a small position with the idea that we'd build it when we got the chance. And now obviously it has accelerated and, you know, revenue growth has accelerated. What do they report? 90%. Um, They're a materially bigger company now than they were and the multiples expanded. And so it's very hard now to kind of like build the position that we originally wanted. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I I think another another really interesting 
point about CrowdStrike is the nature of the revenue is reoccurring. Um, so now they've built up their annual recurring revenue um, to over $650 million, um, and customers are increasing the spend. So th- these are all really interesting things um, that we could look at when we're investing in a company. Yeah, I think that's very good with the imp- implementation, just from what we learned the last couple of months. Yeah, absolutely. You know, people would be like kind of, let's say in a sales meeting, they go, okay, we've still got another six months of our contract with somebody else. CrowdStrike would be like, okay, why don't we just join in now? All you need to do is flick a switch. You don't need to kind of switch off all your computers over the weekend or do something which used to, used to have to happen if you went and redid your entire security. You know, we can just run it parallel for free at no cost hmm. until you're done. Like very compelling pitch, very clever. Um and I guess that's one of those things is cloud native companies have such an opportunity. If they get it right, they can build it from the ground up. You know, your sales and marketing machine, um, your strategy, the product itself. And then I guess from our perspective, once you see these companies with traction, you just know they're good. Absolutely. So I guess it's tough. I mean, how many times have we seen this? There's like some rock star company that trades up, but then the revenue growth comes through. Like look at Zoom, like that looked expensive at 125 and now it's kind of 400 like a few months later. But the revenue growth came through, you know, they did 300% plus. It was like Shopify. We thought it was growing at 50%. It was going to fade down to 25, 30. Um, and instead, it accelerated to 90. So the market was right the whole time. The multiple wasn't as high as it looked. Um, it's really interesting how that happens. But I guess the one consistent thing about the companies in that happy situation is there's no doubt about the customer support. But like Shopify, Zoom, on our CrowdStrike that we're looking at, like it is there, it is real. There's a huge amount of value there that you can't really see in financials, namely, you know, all the customers and revenue growth that will come in the future. Um, so it's a pretty interesting one. What do you think about the competitors? I think there's a couple competitors out there. Um, the one that comes to my mind is Zscaler, um, which also specializes in endpoint protection um, and Zscaler. Um, is also trading at quite a high multiple. Um, last time I checked, it was about 30 times EV sales. Strong. Um, very strong. So I think there's, there's definitely a couple people um, in that space. Um, but from all my reading and um, research, that CrowdStrike is the one um, which is most loved by customers um, and also has the most superior product. Mm, and you can also see that in the revenue growth. You know, like trying to do these things in reverse. Mm. Like what are people actually, where are people actually paying the money? Where, where, where is the money flowing? Like who's buying what? Because all these people will be pitching the same customers. So if one's growing at 40%, one's growing at 90%, you can see that people are definitely kind of, um, well, I guess you can look at absolute values as well, but you can really see where the, the money is flowing. And that's like a really good guide as to what's going on. Um, what are the other competitors? There are quite a few. So Elastic's got a security offering. Elastic does have a security offering. Um, and there was a couple others. So uh, not squarely in the endpoint space, but in, more broadly in the cybersecurity space, there's quite a few companies which are performing exceptionally well. Um, for example, another one that I like is Okta. Um, and Okta doesn't do endpoint protection. Um, they basically do device management. Um, so what that will mean, um, they will allow access um, into a database um, and they'll typically do two-factor authentication. Um, so basically you'll go, on, you'll go onto your phone and then you'll put a code into your computer um, and that's how Okta works. Um, and Okta has also been recording some pretty amazing numbers, um, which really illustrates across the, across mm. the cybersecurity industry, you're starting to see these budding giants um, across it, whether that's an endpoint, um, personal identification. Uh, I think that's been the most interesting thing to look at. I mean, Okta is one of those ones that I guess there was a few like Okta that went, went that kind of exploded in EV sales before all the others. And then even in the big sell-offs, even coronavirus and things like that, you know, they dropped to like you know eight, fifteen to eighteen. They never got cheap again. Like I do think like that that era of like four to five times, four to six times sales for a company growing at eighty percent a year is well and truly over. 
Um, it would take a lot for those companies to trade back down there, probably raising interest rates. But I guess we get that question a lot, right? I mean, valuation multiples seem pretty high. We've obviously had a pretty good run. People thought they were high two months ago, and everything has absolutely ripped since then. So trying to figure out the best way to think about those. I think the most interesting thing to think about in terms of valuation multiples is that if you think about the cybersecurity industry, it has experienced growth. But if you look at the projections um, for 2025, um, it is meant to grow at around a 25 to 30% CAGR. Until and that's then. the industry, right? Yeah, in the, in the whole industry. And the leaders will be growing at twice Absolutely. Yeah. So I think while, yes, the valuation multiples are high at the moment, um, you really are paying for the next generation of companies. Mm. Um, which are doing exceptionally well at the moment and will likely continue to do exceptionally well. Yeah, and these are companies that could go, you know, five to ten times up in sales potentially. Absolutely. I mean, that's the ultimate question. I mean, it's not just that compound growth rate. It's also what does that mean? Is that sensible? You know, you know, these are relatively large companies now, right? Like you're talking about half a bill of revenue. Um, the problem is now you've got market caps of, say, $30 billion. But again, you know, the last time you saw these kinds of numbers, it was Zoom, and then it comes out and just really outperforms. So I don't think anybody would doubt the thesis or the quality of the, of the company or the five or 10 year outlook. And so it's kind of like, when I look at these things, I mean, it's a bit hard now when obviously it's moved up, you know, 30% in the last kind of probably 24 hours or 48 hours. Um, the reality is these are all cheap on a five year view. And like I've always, you know, this was the year where we really put that to the test. Because we said all this stuff in January um, and then we got hit and we closed all our shorts out, you know, every year ago. And then we got hit by, you know, by some measures, the worst crash in three or four hundred years. Um, but, you know, I think, uh, I think the strategy came through in flying colours. You know, that revenue growth was the dominating factor. And, you know, stocks are up a lot from March, sure, but a lot of them aren't up, aren't up much from January. Um, and they're really just, you know, it kind of showed the ones that, like, the really high-quality companies that people are paying up for, you know, they continue to grow. They continue to do it. Absolutely. I, I agree with that. I think another interesting point is that, um, it, as you were speaking about in January, that we came up with some of these companies um, and some of, them were, uh, some of them were technology companies and um, we had a five-year view that that's where we want to put our money in technology. Um, so I think while you could never imagine something like COVID, if you invest your money wisely, for example, in something that you believe in, we are really fond of technology. Um, when a COVID happens, um, it's actually been a, a large beneficiary and another tailwind. Hmm. Do you know, I think that's in your favour with this kind of strategy is time flies. Like mm. what is it? September. I kind of believe that's it's nine months in. And so if we're, let's say average growth rate is whatever it is, 60, 70, 80%, probably on the higher end of that now. You know, you're talking about being materially larger in size, these companies, like a lot. Like you can, it sounds, I don't want to be flippant because I know a lot of investors um, listen to this podcast, but the 20 to 30%, like the drawdown in coronavirus is irrelevant relative to the amount that you can actually make on the other side. Um, and it's not like, it's not like wait for 10 years. It's like just get that second annual compound, you know, that high growth over the next 12 months and then the high growth on top of that. And the odds of stocks being down, these stocks, these very fast-growing, wildly enough stocks being down over that period, it's very low in my opinion. Um, we'll see. Was there anything else? What are, what are your other comments on uh, security? There's some other companies we looked at as well, weren't there? Uh, so there was another company um, of Mimecast and, uh, and CyberArk. 
Um, and both of them are quite interesting companies. Uh, I think broadly in the cybersecurity space, all these companies are forecasting pretty strong growth rates. Um, but I think in every industry, there ultimately will be more successful companies and less successful companies. Um, and we were really focused on, we thought CrowdStrike um, and potentially something like Zscaler um, could be the most successful. Mm. Then it comes down to those numbers, right? So what was Zscaler trading at? Let's have a look. So if CrowdStrike is at 90% and well, I guess we're buying at 20, 25 times sales, now it's 40, 30. Yeah. <laughs> Zscaler. Yeah, Zscaler. Actually, Zscaler was 59% growth, so it was pretty fast as well. And it's got that same kind of parabolic look to it. Um, but 48 times sales, it's almost more expensive, slower growth. It's a bit less compelling. Um, yeah, these, these are tough. These are tough periods to invest through. I guess in many ways, like our best performers over the last couple of months have actually been stuff that's been trading, you know, two, three, four times. You know, companies in Australia like Redbubble, Self Wealth has finally ripped. I think like we bought that and then, uh, what was it? It went all the way up to 70 cents. And then I think an insider, like the CEO basically sold, or the CEO, uh, one of like kind of founding shareholders, sold a lot of shares off market. And that kind of spooked everybody and it dropped. But yeah, now it's like absolutely ripped back up um, and onto new highs. And so it's kind of been like those companies that are not trading at nosebleed levels. There's so many of those opportunities that are live that we're investing in now. Um, you don't really need to chase things like CrowdStrike um, more than you like, particularly want to. Like we have tiny position in CrowdStrike. I think it's helpful to have those small positions because then as they fall, you can like really add and you really get to know a company well when you, when you do it. And, and the, to be honest, the most likely outcome is that CrowdStrike outgrows kind of its EV sales. So if the EV sales contracts, the share price will still be up by the time it happens. Um, so you do kind of want to own these things. Um, but there's plenty of other opportunities that are not at nosebleed levels. I think that's what's most interesting at the moment. Completely. I think there's lots of IPOs happening in the cybersecurity space um, in the next 12 months, which is also very exciting to watch. Mm. I mean, there's that local company, Tessera, that's doing a roll-up of security i mean that's been uh it's certainly been very um popular on twitter better chat with them they seem sensible i guess you just got to get used to that roll-up idea um like that's very different growth from a roll-up is very different from the organic growth that we're going for and so like my default approach would be to strip out all the acquisition and growth like i don't think it really counts it's just not the same it's not the same quality um we were looking at travel stocks as well absolutely what do you think about the travel stocks i think the travel stocks stocks are very interesting um, so we did a little bit of work on travel and we focused on Australia because um, initially we thought um, the Australian domestic travel the Australian domestic travel was a lot more certain um, than people t potentially going overseas next year. Um, so we looked at four companies um, which were uh, Webjet, um, Hello World, um, and Expedia and Booking, which were two big with the two big overseas players. Um, and it was really interesting because initially we were going to the research thinking that we would get a bargain or some uh, a small yeah. bargain. We're convinced like yeah. this could be it. Let's let's find the ones, yeah. especially because like the Aussie ones are still depressed. Absolutely, and we thought this is going to be we're going to find some bargains here and if we are of the view that travel will recover next year then this might be this stock yeah. may provide a strong return um and kind of the further we got into our research um the more we realized that the market had completely priced in um priced in these companies and they were trying fairly high valuations um expedia um is probably five to six percent off its pre-covid value um mm. and similar to booking that it's almost an or almost at the same level pre-COVID, which is 
very, very hard to comprehend that we're in the middle of a, a, a very large pandemic and these companies are trading at pre-COVID values. Yeah, I mean, um, my view is basically that, oh, I guess it's probably not even like my, it's probably a common view. Like the best year in travel will probably be next year or if not next year, the year after. Like so much pent-up demand. Like everyone will take the Euro trip. Everybody will visit their relatives in a different state. Like I feel like that's like the base case for the kind of thesis. Um, but it's a shame like, you know, booking Expedia, clearly not cheap. They, did, they obviously did pretty big debt financings as well. Um, they got plenty of cash on the other side of the debt, so it's not like they're highly leveraged. You know, these weren't amazing businesses going into this. For example, Webjet we're looking at, you know, that revenue would be, you know, up 50%, down 50%, like no consistency. Like do you have pretty much everything in our portfolio, very high confidence over five years will be materially larger and stronger, um, you know, many multiples. I mean, obviously that's how we actually do this. <laughs> we model it out and only buy if we think it'll be like four to five times larger in five years. Um, but you can't say that about these, you know, travel agencies, these even something like booking.com, like there's, there's so many new entrants, so many different takes on, on travel. And also it's quite saturated. Mm. It's not like there's that green open space opportunity that you see in, in other things we're looking at. And I think that was similar for Hello World, that the earnings were fairly steady pre-COVID. Um, they had about $200 million in revenue um, and had proven to be a viable business. And they're currently trading 60% off what they were pre-COVID. So there is definitely a discount in the market if you're of the view that they have large growth next year. Um, however, I think that when we were looking at the business, this wasn't a business that fit our uh, completely fit our portfolio as it didn't get us excited um, and it was more of a travel agency than a very agile, interesting software company that was innovating every day, some of the, some of the other stuff we really like. Yeah, absolutely. And that was, that was the thing about this, this crash, right? Like the people who, picked, who tried to pick the bottom of certain stocks and go, like, okay, this has dropped 50%, let's buy it. Like that was not where the money was. The money was in the amazing companies that were accelerating. Um, there's amazing, fast-growing tech companies. Often some of them didn't even drop that much. You know, something like C, it barely moved. Like we're just sitting there in March waiting for a chance to buy. We just had to kind of like hold our nose and buy it $45. I mean, now it's like $145. <laughs> you know, that was the play. And I think, you know, part of me really wants to go, okay, now there's going to be a vaccine in rotation. Um, and we do have some things that will benefit from that. Um, for example, Alteryx, uh, Progeny, we're buying Disney this month, um, which is already a large position. But I do get the feeling that, you know, this time next year we're going to look back and say, actually, it was those 80 90% organic rock star companies that performed best. You know, and that's typically what you find, right? I agree. I think the, strat the, the more long-term strategy always plays better than, tr than trying to chase the flavor of the month, for example, as no one knows when travel will come back. However, what we do know in a business, as we were talking about before, like CrowdStrike, businesses will likely need cybersecurity solutions. Yeah, we know that as a fact. Yeah. And Absolutely. it's something that people don't like. It's like the market is growing, but that's, it's growing into kind of like, like there's so much, again, talking about greenfield opportunity, like there's so many people that don't have good solutions that need them. Um, it's a pretty interesting space. I mean, I'm glad, there was a, I'm glad we found at least one company that, you know, really ticks all those boxes. Hmm. You know, I guess uh, it just comes back to that, that question on valuations at the moment that's top of mind. So I think, um, I think tech multiples are very high at the moment, but 
they're high for very good reason. Um, I think when you look at a, a travel company, they're trading a, a much lower multiple. You can understand, um, you can really then appreciate why something like a CrowdStrike or something like a Zoom um, is uh, is kind of taking investors um Taking, yeah. taking investors' appetite. The smart move was to pay out for these companies. It really was the whole way through. Um, I find it interesting because, you know, over the last 10 years, 12 years, the amount of times you hear about people talk about overvaluations, it's every single year. It's every time the market moves up, which is like the default state. And the funny thing is people, um, especially people who've kind of like, like I was, I was fully invested in the GFC and probably sold all my stuff at the bottom. You know, this is all a very small PA portfolio. It's like I saw that, I like went through that emotional journey on like a tiny scale. Um, but a lot of people like look at those crashes and the lesson they take is markets can fall more than you think. You know, it's very scary. Don't invest. You know, but I think it's actually the opposite lesson you should be taking. Like pretty much anything you bought, if you bought a good, fast-growing tech company then, you know, you would have made so much money. It would have dwarfed that, that drawdown you know, over the, over the last 10 years. Um, and the long-term holders, of which there are very few, um, because most people are trading out of things, you know, they made a fortune. You know, that, that was the lesson from all these sell-offs, I think, from coronavirus 2016, 2011, 2009, 10. Like, the, the lesson isn't things can drop 20% um, because they can. You know, equities are kind of quite derivative. They're very... Um, you know, it's, the entire thing is a very abstract concept. You know, what is an equity? What is it entitled to? You can't exactly rock up to BHP if you own a stock and say, I'm a shareholder, let me in. You know, it's very, it's very hard to even pin down what, try, like, honestly, try and pin down what you have when you own equity. It's almost impossible. Um, but then, you know, in those big drawdowns, it's like the lesson is that if you ride through them, you're going to do extraordinarily well. And moments like now where everything's gone up, you can't look very smart. And then there'll be moments like in March where you look very stupid. But the one thing that does certainly happen is you just keep compounding those positive returns. And I think that's like, I think we've been put to the test twice. We've had two big drawdowns, actually three big drawdowns if you include the vol shop, um, which we actually made money in in Jan 2018. Um, and it's surprising to come out, come out of those with so strongly when, you know, kind of the old and wise in hands kind of took the opposite approach um, and kind of in general seemed to have done a lot worse. And there's another thing. Um, what is that phrase? Yeah, there's, I think it's Greek or Chinese. It feels like it's Greek. The man just Greek and taking credit for it. It's probably Chinese. They say, like, <laughs> meet your fate when you try to avoid it. And that, is, that rings so true with, like, my experience in the market. Like, the worst year I had was kind of, uh, I guess, late 2018, early 2019. Late 2018 because we got hit pretty bad in that sell-off. Early 2019 because we are still shorting and got hit pretty bad on the shorts. Um, fortunately, we were able to still make it up and... Uh, put a positive year we should have done a lot better because we had so many great stocks um that we bought over that period but that was the period where we were like hedging we had derivatives we're shorting we're constantly trading we're trying we're so scared of a 20 percent drawdown that you know we missed out on 40 to 50 percent upside and that that experience while painful held us in such good stead this year because like it wasn't a, like wasn't by any means our first rodeo we had a rock solid you know framework um with which to deal with the volatility and then, you know, came through it quite strongly. And I feel like that was like that. And then, you know, we're probably, for many people, we're probably the best performing, you know, asset throughout that period. And most of our investors are super funds. It's quite important that you have at least one asset that can do very well when things are hard, when volatility is high. Um, it's a very, comf very, very happy, not just in the way things worked out, but the fact that when things really started moving, like this was the right, this was the right approach. You know, the right approach was to invest long term in these fast growing tech companies. 
you know, the people doing short-term value trades or long-term value trades or hedging or shorting, you know, they, that was not the place to be. They were dangerous spots to be. The safest spot within the long-term people with that framework that we have that's like consistent and logical and like sound. You know, it's, it's really interesting that just from a, you know, intellectual perspective that that was, you know, the right answer to like the turmoil of this year. But I guess it's not over. Who knows what happens next? I agree. Um, I, I think I think you mentioned a couple points. Um, the point that came to my mind um, was really about investing about what you believe in. Um, I think here um, we're really excited about technology for um, for a variety of reasons. Um, we think the business models are great, um, and we also think in the next ten to twenty years the biggest companies around the world will all be tech companies. I think you've seen history, the shift of like, what are the biggest companies? Originally it was Ford and the car companies. Then you had the oil and resource companies. And we think going forward, um, it's going to, it's going to be the companies um, who are innovating. For example, like Tesla are covering both tech, uh, covering both automotive and energy space. Isn't that interesting? Um, yeah. It's like the game changing those two enormous industries. Um, I think I think and I think a couple of those tech, uh, technology companies are crossing over those industries, and that's what makes them so powerful. So ultimately, um, at the end of the day, we are confident that when we invest in a company like Elastic, which helps developers enable search, or for example, we have a company like CrowdStrike where it has lots of customers, uh, lots of Fortune 500 customers. Um, there will be, for example, um, services that they really enjoy using um, and are important to their business. Mm, definitely. I and mean, the Tesla point's an interesting one. I feel like it's probably harming us more than it. Surprising because it's gone so well. It's, it's still harming us more than it helps. You know, like pitch meetings, it's kind of like, well, we're going to invest in this fund because I don't own things like Tesla. You know, it's like the question shouldn't be like, why do we own Tesla? The question should be like, why doesn't the other person? Like, how do you miss this like 50x move in a company that everybody was there? You know, I, feel, I really feel like that question needs to be turned on its head. And, you know, there was like hundreds of billions of dollars of value created um, in a company that everybody knew and everybody had an opinion on. So if you got that wrong, why, why did you, what did you miss there? Like they 50-fold, they increased their car sales by 50 times. You know, that was a buy, not a sell. And I, I think, yeah, I think it's really important to understand that that was the value creation. It's not some tech bubble, maybe where it's got ahead of itself, maybe it's not. Um, you know, it looked like it got ahead of itself when it went from 400 to 700. Um, and now it's at 2,500 effectively. I agree. And I think regardless of what you think of valuation multiples and technology, there will be a space in everyone's portfolio for some of these companies. So for the people that don't say, I don't invest in Afterpay, I don't invest in Tesla, I don't invest in all the most successful companies, some of the most successful companies over the last couple of years, then it is possibly time to shift that to have a portion of mm. the portfolio that looks at these really interesting tech companies. Mm. What's the thing? You cannot ignore these companies. Like you cannot ignore... When Tesla does something like 20, not even just because of the price movement, when they increase their car sales by 50 times and the rest of the auto industry is stagnant, you can't ignore this or afterpay. Think about like 20 billion plus value creation um, that fortunately mostly went to retail shareholders and then look at tens of billions of dollars of value destruction in each of the major banks here. You know, the safe play, people thought the safe play was to collect the dividend from the banks and it was the opposite. That was the value destructive play. Backing the innovator, the successful innovator, you know, that people actually had actual customer support you know, that was the way to kind of protect capital. You know, we have so many examples of this where like the game-changing innovator looks risky but then ends up taking enormous market share and actually being the safest, not just the safest, but the correct place um, to put your, your capital. So I'm very happy with the strategy at the moment. <laughs> not just because it's, we're in the middle of a tech rip. 
absolutely. And since you brought up Afterpay, I think it's super interesting. Um, what's your view on the PayPal move, direct move into the buy now pay later space? Um, and how do you see kind of the recent drop in Afterpay? It's interesting. I mean, I the way I see it, there's a couple of things. So Afterpay always competed with PayPal. So when Afterpay was like nothing and nobody knew who they were and they were just like, because Nick Mullen was running around trying to convince retailers to put him on their shop, put him on their website, you know, before that was Visa, MasterCard, PayPal, then Afterpay. So Afterpay was able to win that the entire time. Um, and, that was, and the winners in Buy Now, Pay Later, and the reason we're, we're sticking to the number one here is because they have to win, the winner will have to win two, in two ways. They have to get customers to click their, click their payment option they have to win at that decision point, either at the checkout or often before the checkout, when you see that last pay logo. Um, but they'll also have to demonstrate the value to the retailers. And at the moment, that's still rock solid. You know, I was looking at PayPal actually charges a lot. You know, if Afterpay charges four, sometimes higher um, percent, PayPal can often charge like a similar amount without offering any of that extra stuff that Afterpay offers. So in many ways, PayPal kind of had to do this to justify their value offering. You know, and I've always thought that I've always thought it was Afterpay going after PayPal rather than the other way around. Like, I really think that that's, that's the kind of like, if it works, that will become the way to pay. And it's not because of some free interest or, you know, some giving loans to people who can't afford to pay them. It's because it's, you know, frankly, because it's just easy and better for consumer and it's a great product, you know. It's, it's very hard to pin down what it is. I think it's the fact that you can use a username and password, super fast, very few clicks, great branding. Um, one simple message, not like a bunch of different lending products and payment options. Um, whatever it is, that, that combination is just so effective. Uh, so I think it's probably a chance for PayPal to really go after the payments giants rather than the other way around. Does that make any sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. And we were looking at graphs, but looking at the, the revenue and the size between PayPal and Afterpay. And Afterpay is still a fraction of PayPal. So even if, even if Afterpay continues to grow um, and takes even a fraction of what PayPal currently has, um, it will be an enormous company in five to ten years. Mm, definitely. And we'll be there to see it. Absolutely. Um, why don't we wrap up there? Thanks so much for coming on, Sam. We really enjoyed so that. Pleasure. Um, we'll catch you next time.